Acts chapter 12, um, starting from verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet, and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod, had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Thanks, Peter. I don't know if we realised that Peter was reading about Peter. 
Uh, well, that worked out well. Uh, good evening, everyone. It's great to be here with you. If you haven't met me, my name's Ken, one of the pastors here, and I'll just add my welcome to the one you've already received from Dave. Um, I want to start tonight just with a really quick review of where we're up to. This term, uh, we're in our second round of looking at the book of Acts. Last year, we looked at Acts chapters 1 to 7, 1 to 8, um, and we saw there that Luke, the author of Acts, intentionally shows how Jesus, after his resurrection and ascension to heaven, continues his mission. He's no longer on earth, but he's still running things now from the command centre in heaven. Chapter 1, verse 8 sets the agenda for the whole of the book. If you understand nothing else, just go to 1, verse 8, and it summarises everything for you, that Jesus' followers will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what we saw in chapters 1 to 6. Witness does happen in Jerusalem, and many Jews there acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that they've been waiting for, that had been prophesied. Others there in Jerusalem and its surroundings reject Jesus, and that opposition to Jesus and his followers intensifies until in chapter 7, deadly persecution begins with Stephen's death, the, the first martyr. And while that sounds like a bad thing, it also does actually produce good results, results in line with chapter 1, verse 8. It scatters Jewish Christians out from Jerusalem, leading to the spread of the message about King Jesus, first to Jews and then to non-Jews, the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 8, Cornelius, his relatives and close friends in chapter 10. Now, at first, Jewish Christians are incredibly hesitant to even believe that it's possible for Gentiles to become a part of the family of God unless they become Jews first. But as we saw last week in chapter 11, some Christians began not just speaking to Jews but actively telling Gentiles that Jesus died and rose for them too. It is an exciting time to be out there in Gentile territory. And I want to make a parallel, a couple of parallels to the church meeting that was held here in Gentile Territory on Tuesday night. Uh, it was very exciting to welcome into membership another two Gentiles, Ellen Higgins and Mike Kelly up on, up on screen there. Now, membership, if you don't know what it is, is a, is a really helpful way to be actively involved in everything that takes place here and from here out. Uh, we are really glad that our membership is growing and we would love to see more and more people actively participating in all that takes place here at WC and through WBC. And so if that's something that you don't know anything about or you're not sure if that's something for you, come and talk to one of the pastors afterwards. There's membership forms out in the foyer right up the far end, uh, and that's something that we can talk to you more about. Now, at the annual at the annual meeting, the AGM, um, this annual report was released, and these are now available again out on the welcome desk or on our new website. In it is described our desire to see the gospel spreading further with a, a renewed emphasis. We've been thinking about this for a number of years, but we really, over this next twelve months, want to really dig into emphasising prayer and finance for the church planting in the Calderwood area. This is somewhere where there's going to be thousands of new houses, new families moving into the area. 
Uh, and we want to be a part of what God's doing in that area. So it's something that we'll come back to and think about more in the sermon. But grab your uh, report and you can read more about it. Now, in that same report, there's a financial update. Last week we saw in Acts chapter 11 that the Gentiles' gratitude for receiving the gospel from Jewish Christians was expressed in financial support of those Jewish Christians. Now, at WBC, we are incredibly grateful for receiving the gospel, and and we're glad that that has been expressed in financial support of Christians in need. It it means that we, last year, in, in the last financial year, not only met but actually exceeded the budget that we had set, which was already a rise from the year before. Now, we intentionally don't speak a lot about money from up the front. Uh, we don't part, we no longer pass the bags around, uh, because, partly because we don't want money to become an unhelpful focus. We don't want you to think this is what they're always banging on about. But it is right to give thanks to God for his provision through his people in this place. And so we're going to pray about some of those things. And then tonight in chapter 12, we return to what's going on in Jerusalem. We've been out in Gentile territory. We return back to where it all began in Jerusalem. And we need God's help to both understand and respond to that rightly. So will you pray with me now? Lord Jesus, we do thank you uh, that... When you rose and ascended, that wasn't the end of everything. It was actually the start of a new way of you continuing your mission. Uh, And it's been exciting over the last number of weeks to be looking at what's happening in the book of Acts and not only what it meant back then, but what it actually continues to mean for us as your people here in Wollongong. Uh, We do give thanks for the meeting on Tuesday night uh, for uh, Ellen and Mike Uh, becoming members here at WBC. We pray that they would be encouraged by the church and that they'd be a great encouragement to us, Uh, that through our church that you'd continue to do good things. We do give thanks for Calderwood, Tullambar, this area where there are literally thousands of houses being built, new families moving into the area, some who already know you, many who do not. Uh, And Lord, we long to see you reaching people in that area. We'd love to be a part of that. uh, And so we ask that you would guide us in that way forward, whether it's through bringing a church planner, through giving us new ideas of how this can be done. We also want to give thanks for the, the generosity of your people in this place. We thank you that one of the things that you give us uh, is finance uh, and that we are able to use that not just to feather our own nest, but to actually build your kingdom. And we pray that you would uh, increasingly make us aware of the good things that you've given us and how we can use them for you. Uh, so I thank you for that uh, being an obvious outcome of an understanding of the gospel that we've received in your people here. Lord, we do thank you for the book of Acts. Uh, We thank you for chapter 12 and the opportunity uh, to meet with others and think together about it. We ask that by your Holy Spirit, you'd enable us not only to understand what it meant, but how we can respond to it in a way that honours you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Great Escape is a 1963 movie that featured, among many other famous actors, Steve McQueen. 
Set in the a World War II Nazi prison camp, this scene is probably the most famous. Steve McQueen jumping over the fence on a mo motorcycle in an attempt to escape. Now, while the movie is based on real events in which 76 POWs actually escaped from Starlag Luft 3, spoiler alert if you haven't managed to see it sometime in the last 60 years, the motorcycle chase never actually happened. Sorry about that. Uh, sadly, in real life, as in the movie, all but three of those 76 escapees were recaptured and 50 of them were executed by Hitler's direct order. He wanted to kill all of them and his advisor said, don't kill all of them, otherwise they'll take revenge for people that they've captured who they've got in their camps. But the movie, as many war movies do, highlights the ingenuity of the Allies their bravery, their, their courage, and the hint of good luck that enables them to overcome their wicked captors. It all combines to make it one of the classic wartime tales, which not so subtly claims, we're better than you. Almost two millennia before the movie was released, there was another great escape. But it was an escape of a very different nature. Rather than a dramatic claim to be able to outsmart the enemy, Peter's escape is one in which the escapee is almost entirely passive. And so tonight we're going to look at Peter's passive prison break. Say that three times quickly. And think about why did Luke include this here for us to read? Peter's passive prison break. Luke begins in verse 1 by making the connection to the events that we looked at last week. About this time, that is, about the same time that in Antioch, Gentiles heard about Jesus and put their trust in him. At that time, Herod begins persecuting Christians in Jerusalem. Now, remarkably, when these brand new Gentile Christians in Antioch hear that the original Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were doing it tough in a famine, they sent a gift, that is, they sent money to the Christians in Jerusalem. In gratitude for Jewish Christians sharing the gospel with them, they, in return, shared what they had with the Jewish Christians. This practical, relief-providing gift is a really powerful indicator of the, the unity between these two groups that otherwise would have been enemies on opposite sides or, or at absolute least indifferent to one another's needs. It is in, intended for us to, to understand this is a great outcome, an unexpected thing. And yet Herod does exactly the opposite. Now, I had to do a fair bit of homework this week to actually get my head around this. We know from history that the Herod in chapter 12 is Herod Agrippa who is the nephew of Herod Antipas, who took part in Jesus' trial and beheaded John the Baptist. And he was the grandson of Herod the Great, who tried to kill Jesus at his birth. Originally, the Herods were an Edomite family. They weren't Jews. And Herod the Great had been appointed king of the Jews, despite being a Gentile. And so this Herod in chapter 12 is what we would probably call Herod III, and he now adds persecution to the already severe famine that the Christians in Jerusalem were dealing with. This is three generations of fighting against Jesus. Luke is intentionally contrasting 
Gentiles who support Jewish Christians with a Gentile who persecutes Jewish Christians. This is the first non-Jewish persecution that's actually even recorded in the book of Acts. Up until now, every single Gentile has responded positively to Jesus. It has only been Jews who persecute fellow Jews because they've accepted that Jesus is the Messiah and they just can't go there. But now, as the gospel spreads from Jews to Gentiles, Gentiles get in on the persecution of Jewish Christians. It's pretty clear from the text that Herod's main motive is political. Verse 2, he has James, the brother of John, one of the apostles, executed as his first foray into the persecution of Christians. It's a pretty bold start, isn't it? Now, this pleases the Jews who are there in Jerusalem and don't accept that Jesus is the Messiah. And so because of the response, it gets goodwill from the people, then Herod decides to put Peter in jail also during the festival of unleavened bread. Now, that mention of the festival is not just an incidental time marker. It's not telling us what time of the year it was. The festival of unleavened bread is another name for the whole feast of Passover when Jesus had been brought to trial and ended up in jail. On that occasion, Pilate, the governor, had attempted to get rid of Jesus by sending him to Herod Antipas, who ended up just mocking Jesus. This time, Herod Agrippa... His nephew intends to bring Peter out for public trial after the Passover concluded. And so Peter ends up in the highest security prison that existed at the time. If we think back to the time when Jesus was just about to be taken prisoner, the Last Supper, what does, Jesus, what does Peter say to Jesus? He, he boldly insisted that he would go to jail and even die with him good intentions that he didn't follow through on. But now, at this Passover, Peter is in prison and it looks very likely that he is going to die. But, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. This action of the church calling on their Lord Jesus for help is crucial This is what changes what's going on. Back in the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples, even those who were closest to Jesus, had fallen asleep while Jesus prayed. Jesus alone did what was central to success. This time, the church prays earnestly. They know that this situation is out of their control, but they also know the comforting truth that Jesus is in control And so they pray. A complete waste of time in the mind of Herod and others like him, but the necessary response for anyone who knows who Jesus really is. Because Jesus is commander-in-chief and because Jesus continues to run his mission from heaven, then it makes perfect sense to call on him when things are going on like this. And we will do well to remember what Jesus thought about persecution, as he revealed in his interaction with Saul on the road to Damascus, chapter 9, verse 5, when he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, Saul. To persecute Christians is to persecute Jesus. 
And so we can be very confident that Jesus is watching everything that Herod does. And he takes it very personally. Which makes the fact that at the 11th hour, Peter remains locked up with no way out, probably an unexpected situation. If Jesus is in control and he's able to free Peter, well, why hasn't he? In fact, if we reflect on this for a little bit, Jesus' track record on this is actually pretty bad. Stephen in chapter 7, James, the apostle at the start of this chapter, both dead. And yet it is only when nobody else can help that Jesus sends an angel, wakes Peter, punches him in the side and says, come on, let's go. Evidently, Peter is calm enough to sleep soundly the night before his trial and likely martyrdom. He is so at ease with this outcome that when his rescuer comes, he thinks it's all a dream. It's like that time he was hungry and this sheet came down out of heaven. It's not until he has passed the guards, walked through an, an apparent automatic gates when automatic gates didn't exist, and, and sleepwalked the length of an entire street before he realises that his very vivid dream is not a dream at all. He has been rescued by the angel of the Lord. But totally unlike the Great Escape movie, he hasn't outsmarted his captives, sorry, his captors. He, he hasn't patiently tunnelled his way out of the jail or devised some elaborate scheme to escape. He has been liberated without even realising that it was actually taking place. It's only after his rescue is complete that it dawned on him that he'd been rescued from Herod's plot and the hopes of the Jews. And for the very first time in this account, Peter has to make a decision to act. The first thing he does is go to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who is also called Mark. There's lots of names in this story, isn't there? Um, we're not even told why this particular family's house but any potential cleverness of the good guys gets further undermined. When, when Peter gets to the house, which would have been a building inside a compound with walls around the outside of it, he knocks at the outer gate and a servant girl called Rhoda answered, It's me, Peter. Probably loud whispers, not wanting enemy soldiers nearby to overhear him or Jewish leaders. And Rhoda who evidently knows Peter's voice well enough to know that it's him, runs off into the house so excited that she doesn't even open the gate for him. Peter must have been terrified. He's escaped. But is he going to get caught again by this incompetence? He keeps banging on the door while Rhoda is trying to convince the prayer meeting that Peter's outside. The answer to their prayer is already here. Now, why she didn't just run back and open the door, I have no idea. But thoroughly unconvinced that there is any possibility whatsoever that Peter has actually been freed, the prayers eventually think the best way to prove, not that the prayer's been answered, but that Rhoda is crazy, is by opening the door. And there stood Peter. The astonishment, absolute shock, of verse 16 indicates that, that while they were praying, evidently they either weren't praying for Peter's release or they didn't really believe that Jesus would do it. Which I think should make us cautious in seeing the earnest prayers of verse 5 
as the cause of Peter's freedom. Some people read this passage and conclude that if you just get a lot of people to pray, then it will be much more effective. If only my prayer request goes viral, then the cancer will be healed. If the pastor or some specially gifted prayer warrior prays for me, then we'll be able to have kids. But prayer is not twisting God's arm or getting the magic words correct. I think this event is intentionally more like a comedy than the model for us to emulate, a commentary on our weak reality rather than the ideal. It seems that Peter is released not because of the prayers, but despite their lack of faith. For some reason we may never know, Jesus allows Stephen and James to be martyred while he miraculously sets free Peter. And yet the deaths of Stephen and James are not an indicator of Jesus' lack of care or lack of ability to rescue. Rather, there just remains a mystery as to why Jesus miraculously intervenes in the one situation and not in the other two. Which possibly could make some of us think that, "Mm, I'm not so sure about this praying thing. If Peter is released, even though people weren't confidently trusting for that, then why should, I bother tr- why should I bother praying at all? Well, we clearly pray from this passage because we recognise that Jesus is in control and we are not. Other passages in the Bible will instruct us on prayer, will encourage and, and demonstrate praying, whereas I think that this passage shows that even the best of prayers are doing something that is beyond their full comprehension. Sure, we get some of it, but yet in the middle of that mysteriousness of prayer, what is very clear is that people who know that Jesus is in control pray. It's what they do. We'll never fully understand it, but it doesn't excuse us not praying. In fact, if we don't pray very much, it probably indicates that we may mistakenly think that we're the ones in control. I think that this passage does give really good encouragement for us to be re-emphasising our commitment to pray for a church planner as highlighted in the annual report. I don't know why, I don't understand why God hasn't provided the right person yet. It seems like a great thing to do, something consistent with God's desires as revealed in his word, something that's right for the current situation with with the rapid growth taking place down there. Now's the time to get in. Logically, we should already be down there. But what we do know is that Jesus cares for the people of Calderwood and Tullambar more than you or I do or ever will. We also know that Jesus does have the power to bring just the right person, to work with just the right team at just the right time. So let us get on with praying. Let's pray for one another, for our church, for church planner and and a new youth worker to start next year, for our mission partners, for our nation. Let's pray for those relatives of ours with hard hearts, for, for the sick, for the persecuted, for people who are grieving. Let's pray on our own. On Friday the 15th, next month, at our prayer and praise night, in our home groups each Sunday. 
When we see an out-of-control world, let's remember that it's not actually true. Everything is actually under Jesus' control. So let's pray. Now, coming back to our passage, even though we aren't told the reason or reasons that Peter is rescued by Jesus, evidently Jesus had more work for Peter to do. Peter instructs the group to pass on what has happened to James, that is, Jesus' brother, and the other leaders of the church that remain there in Jerusalem. We'll meet them in chapter 15. And Peter then hightails it out of Jerusalem for somewhere else. Where he went, we don't have any idea. It's not until chapter 15 that we hear that Peter has made it back to Jerusalem. More important than where he went is what happened in Jerusalem in his absence. And so the account continues in verse 18. In Jerusalem, the morning after Peter's passive prison break, his absence from jail is discovered. And the guards freak out because they know what's coming. Because they have no explanation for what, it, what has happened, it's their lives for Peter's. All are executed for their dereliction of duty. That's how it worked in those days. Which then leads into what seems at first to be an unrelated little story that follows in verses 19 to 23, which in my Bible gets a new heading. Herod's thrown around his weight. Now something's going to happen to Herod. Well, Herod leaves Judea, presumably because Passover is finished, the party's over, and so he goes back home to Caesarea where his palace was. As in Judea, where he's been for the Passover, Herod was having political problems with the people of Tyre and Sidon, which is just a little bit further north from Caesarea. These cities, says, depended on the king's country, presumably Rome, that is, not Judea, for their food. And with the help of a mediator named Blastus, they tell Herod that they will submit to him as their king. If he is their king, we'll look after them. Apparently it's a win-win trade deal. And to make sure Herod will realise just how devoted the people of Tyre and Sidon are, the crowd shout out that Herod's a god, not a man. Presumably they don't really believe it. They're just playing politics with a politician. And he, as a politician, laps it up. When zap, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. Notice the order, eaten by worms first and then dies. I'm not sure how that works. It is a shocking and totally unexpected end to an arrogant man, explicitly because Herod did not give praise to God. A man who thought based on his experience, that he had all the power, who thought he could do whatever he wanted and no one could say a thing. But he was actually answerable to Jesus. Verse 24, But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. And so Luke makes his main point. From our limited perspective, it may seem that Jesus is a a million miles away and unable to do anything of any impact here on earth. Herod looks like he's the one in the foreground of world events, the one who has authority, uncontested power. But Jesus shows us who has the real power, who has the authority over each of our lives. It is Jesus' words, not Herod's, 
that determines outcomes. Now, again, at this point, it is worth noting that it's necessary to read Acts as description, not as prescription. We are not supposed to conclude from this that Jesus is going to strike down immediately all pretenders who don't adequately respect him. Sure, that is what will ultimately happen, but I mean, don't expect politicians to just start dropping dead everywhere and being eaten by worms. And also don't conclude that they are God approved just because they happen to be in power at the moment. The main point of the passage is that God's word will continue to spread and to flourish always. While opposition was increasing and and leaders were being executed, this was a reminder for the Christians, for the first Christians to not fear to understand that Jesus has got this, don't worry. And likewise for us, as opposition is increasing, decisions being made against Christians, philosophies beginning to dominate that reject Christian beliefs, don't fear. It may look like God's servants are at the whim of those with earthly power, but don't mistake who has ultimate power and don't bow the knee to the wrong leader, Jesus has still got this. King Jesus remains on a mission for people in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth to hear of what he has done for them. And so as we think about Calderwood and our mission partners in universities around Australia, the Reeves in Albania, the Yawans in Thailand, all the other people that we support, we are confident that God's word will continue to spread and to flourish. Don't get distracted by what you can see. And as we have lunch with our work colleagues, as we talk with our sceptical relatives, as as you chat with that mum at school pickup, we know that Jesus will be known by them too. They may at the moment seem obstinate, uninterested, antagonistic, but Jesus will be known as king. That is what Jesus the one in control is on about. So we better make sure that it's our number one priority too. The movie The Great Escape shows incredible planning and determination that overcomes the odds. It was an extraordinary and incredibly dangerous project that in the end saved just three men. And yet it has inspired many for many generations. The passive prison break was implemented by Jesus and saved only Peter. And yet it teaches us not to rely on our ingenuity or planning, our strategies or effort. Instead, it assures us that we have a king who is completely trustworthy. It doesn't guarantee that things will work out as we would like, as Stephen and James's families would testify. Doesn't assure us that that we will conquer the bad guys as we might like to, but it does declare that our King Jesus is greater than any other power. Do we trust in him? Well, let's pray to him now and even more and more in the days to come. King Jesus, we are so privileged to know that you have ultimate control that even as we look around our world and see 
desperate leaders who think that they have the power, who crush people with their military force, who destroy people with the things that they do, they're answerable to you. We thank you that we can see that you are a good God who is watching over us and knows everything that's being done. And so we ask that you would enable us to be people who don't trust in ourselves, who can make plans and uh, try and strategize for the future. And yet as we do that, we recognize that we are completely dependent upon you for everything. Enable us to be people that show that dependence, that we wouldn't be people that are slow to pray, but we would be quick to bring things before you, quick to recognize that you are the one in all control. Lord, we pray that as we trust in you, that we would see your promise fulfilled, that your word would continue to grow and to flourish, that more and more people would come to know you as king. We pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.